I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Philippians 3, 1 through 9. As you can see, we are beginning chapter 3 of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And here in chapter 3, he explains for us the Christian life. He begins in our passage by explaining the doctrine of justification, how we are made right before God. And then he proceeds to explain the life of sanctification, this gradual transformation of our inward man to conform to the glorious image of Christ himself. And then he concludes this chapter by pointing us to our glorious hope, the second coming of Jesus himself, when our bodies will be transformed to mirror the very image of Christ himself, his glorious body. But today we begin at the beginning, as it were, as we seek to understand this glorious doctrine of justification. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, Paul begins our passage this evening with this command to rejoice. Paul's intention is that we would be rejoicing constantly. In fact, he confirms this and makes this even more explicit in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. But I think we all would acknowledge that our experience of joy in this life is oftentimes elusive. The moment in which we seem to have it, it slips away. But why is this the case? Well, there are many things in life that make us feel the very opposite of joy. On a, on a more general level, our country currently is facing deep division, social unrest, a pandemic. Many of the normal rhythms and patterns of our life seem far from normal. But on a more personal level, we all have our own particular crosses to bear. 
struggles and trials to endure. This may look like health issues, financial strain, relational strain. This may look like uh, struggling with contentedness over present circumstances. The list could keep going and going. Many of these things leave us feeling depressed, angry, sad, not joyful. Furthermore, even the good things in life, time with family, hike in nature, good food, vacation, whatever else you enjoy, they don't fully satisfy, do they? They always leave us longing for more. Every good thing does indeed come to an end. So where do we find this joy, this joy that's with us through every circumstance and season of life that Paul's referring to? Well, the Philippians would have been asking a very similar question, as they themselves were faced with division, relational conflict, false teachers who were seeking to lead them astray, along with many of the other uh, struggles that we all endure as creatures living in a fallen world. And the fact of the matter is, our joy, as well as the Philippians' joy, will continue to be elusive so long as it is only tied to our life in this world. Therefore, Paul, in this passage, is telling us how we can have joy that transcends our present circumstances, that transcends our present season of life. Notice that Paul doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. And these three words are key. In the Lord. What does Paul refer to uh, with these uh, three words. Well, Paul will go on in our passage to speak about this doctrine of justification. And boys and girls, our justification refers to how we as sinners can be made right before a holy God through the work of Christ. Therefore, when Paul says in the Lord, he's referring to the Lord's justification of us in Christ. This is what we're called to rejoice in. We're called to rejoice in the Lord's justification of us in Christ. Thus, our justification gives us reason to rejoice no matter our circumstances, no matter our season of life. Our justification gives us reason to rejoice no matter what we are going through. This is good news, isn't it, brothers and sisters? He's telling us of a joy that can be with us no matter what we go through in this life. This is true. The important question then is how do we attain this joy of our justification? How do we attain this joy of our justification? Well, Paul tells us in this passage that we need to do three things in particular. And the first of which is we need to look out for the enemy. We need to look out for the enemy of our joy, of the joy of our justification. Now, if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 2, Paul says in in quite strong terms, he says, look out, or you could even say, beware. He's telling the Philippians to look out for false teachers, these Judaizers who were in, in Philippi. He's telling them to beware of them. Now, Paul describes these individuals in verse 2 by using three terms. And these three terms that Paul uses are seeped in irony. 
And these terms tell us that the false teachers were trusting, they were looking to themselves for their justification. They were looking for themselves for this joy that only God can provide. So the first term that you see that Paul uses to describe uh, these false teachers is, is this term dogs. He says, look out for the dogs. Now the Judaizers were those who trusted in their own lineage. They claimed they prided themselves in being pure Jews, tracing their lineage all the way back to the forefathers of the faith. And they would look down upon the Gentiles, the mutts as it were. In fact, they would use this term dogs to refer to the Gentiles. But Paul, as he says elsewhere, uh, tells us that the true seed of Abraham are not those who can trace their lineage back to him, but those who profess true faith. Therefore, Paul says, uh, these Philippians who don't have the esteemed lineage, but have faith. They're the true seed of Abraham. And these Judaizers, who may indeed have the pristine lineage, but don't have faith, they are the dogs. They are the mutts, as it were. Paul's flipping this term on its head as he describes them as dogs. Well, the second term that Paul uses to describe uh, these false teachers is evildoers. They're evildoers. Again, these false teachers were trusting in their own law-keeping. They prided themselves as being meticulous keepers of the law. Again, Paul terms, uh, turns this, this term on its head as he calls them the evildoers, something they would be astounded by if they heard. Because every human work, even the best work in this life, is tainted, corrupt, imperfect with sin, cannot even for a moment stand before God's righteous judgment. This last term that Paul uses to describe the, these false teachers, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Now again, we see that the, the, these Judaizers, these false teachers, were trusting in their circumcision. Again, something that related to what they did. But they forgot that what really mattered is having a circumcised heart. In a similar way, uh, we don't trust in our baptisms in themselves to wash away our sin. Rather, our baptisms point to being washed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers uh, forgot about the symbolism. They forgot about what circumcision ultimately pointed to, and they were trusting in the physical act itself. Therefore, Paul compares them to pagan religions whose members lacerate the flesh, Well, now in verse 3, uh, Paul tells the Philippians that they are the true people of God. They are the justified, the saved. And he's telling them, exhorting them not to let this enemy create doubt in their minds about their secure status in Christ. He's warning them not to let the enemy steal the joy of their own justification. Well, who is our enemy today? As we gather 2020 in Gig Harbor, who is who's our enemy? Obviously, we don't have Judaizers running around our streets seeking to subvert our faith in the same way uh, the Philippians, um, or in a similar way that, that, that was being done to the Philippians. Well, this could look like false teachers. 
Every age of the church struggles with false teachers. And many of us here may have been negatively influenced in the past by, uh, by false teachers, wolves in sheep clothing. So we always need to be on guard for those who seek to add to the basic, require, uh, basic message of the gospel. So we do. We do need to look out, beware of, of false teachers. However, I believe that there's still yet another enemy that we face on a much more regular basis. And that enemy is our own conscience. Our own conscience. Yes, our conscience can be used of God, but our conscience, because of the fall, can also be used as a tool of the devil to condemn us, accuse us, to turn the eyes of our faith inward upon ourselves. And in this way, our conscience is really doing exactly what the Judaizers were doing to the Philippians in the first century. For example, listen to our own, how our own Heidelberg Catechism describes our justification. It says in question and answer 60, how are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? And the answer it gives is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have previously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and prone always to all evil. So your conscience seeks to accuse us. Oftentimes the whisperings of our conscience can, can go something like this. You claim to be the justified even after this week? Or how can you believe in a salvation from a God who seems so absent in this world? Or maybe even tempt us to, towards pride. Oh, you're actually doing pretty good. You're much better than those second-class Christians over there. If we're not only false teachers, but even our own consciences, we need to be aware of and look out as they seek to steal the joy of our justification. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight back. Fight back against the enemy, as it were. And this is why our theology is so important. What we believe about, or what we believe about how God has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures. And yes, our theology helps us identify the false teachers. But the theology is not just for bookish people. People enjoy reading thick theology books in their spare time. Our theology is immensely practical. So when the prosecution is leveled, the prosecution of your conscience is leveled against you, what defense do you have? The only substantial defense we have is the word of God. But how well do you know the word of God? How much of the word of God do you have stored up in your heart? For those moments when you're washing the dishes or at work and the prosecution is being leveled against you, do you have any defense? Well, the main tactic of the enemy, as I mentioned, is to point the finger at us, whether to tempt us to despair or to, pro- or, or, or to be prideful and boastful. Thus, the second step which would seem to make sense, is that we need to actively and deliberately be looking away from ourselves. So the second step in which we attain to the, the joy of our justification is we need to be looking away from ourselves. 
The main reason we need to be looking away from ourselves is because looking to ourselves will never lead to this type of joy that Paul is describing in our passage. Well, where do we see this in, in verses 1 through 9? Well, again, if you look with me at the end of verse 3, Paul describes the people of God as those who put no confidence in the flesh. That's how he describes the justified, the people of God. They put no confidence in themselves. He then goes on in verses 4 through 6 to describe all the things that he once boasted about. And he goes through his stellar spiritual resume, a resume which could have stood toe-to-toe to the best Israelite out there. Yet he says even he has nothing which could stand before the judgment seat of God. He describes looking away from himself and his accomplishments in a number of ways. Uh, For instance, in verses 7 through 8, we see that uh, he counts it all as loss. All of these accomplishments, he counts it all as loss. In verse 9, he says that he has no righteousness of his own. Nothing that he can boast about in himself. And in verse 8, which sort of is a fitting climax to these descriptions, is that he counts it all as rubbish. Or you really could translate that as dung or, or manure. That's how he regards everything he once boasted about, all of his previous accomplishments. It's like manure, it's like dung. It's worthless when it comes to justifying him, to bringing that joy, that transcendent joy that he's describing in this passage. Now, growing up on a farm myself, one of my least favorite chores to do was to clean out the manure in calf pens. In our farm, we had these calf pens in an enclosed barn. I remember how miserable it was when, especially on a hot, humid day in the summer, you know, my dad would give me a wheelbarrow and a pitchfork, and I have to, you know, shovel out all of this manure. And what happens as soon as you start shoveling out this manure? Well, ammonia from the manure is just stifling. It's about 100 degrees in the barn. It was not a pleasant experience whatsoever. Yet this is the imagery that Paul uses to describe all of his previous accomplishments. It's like sitting in that calf pen on a hot, humid day. So Paul is saying, when you look to yourself, whether it be your career, your intellect, your family, your accomplishments, your looks, your personality, fill in the blank. When you look to yourself for your justification, when you look to yourself to provide this joy which only God can provide. You're running to the calf pen of manure. That's what Paul's saying. And to be even more specific, I think Paul's saying that there's really only two options for you, two calf pens that you can run to. So you have the calf pen of pride when you look to yourself. You become boastful and prideful. You look down upon others, much like the Judaizers did, thinking that you can actually obey the law, thinking that uh, you're actually a pretty good person. But this does not lead to joy. Why? Because pride is inherently competitive. Pride's only satisfaction is from being better than others, having more than others. And there's no end to that road. There's no satisfaction when you go down that road. That's why oftentimes some of the most wealthiest people in this country are are some of the most miserable people. Because they realize that there's always more that could be had. Now, obviously, the second calf pen of despair, which uh, would be the elder alternative when we actually look within ourselves and see our utter sin and misery, 
we're not just comparing ourselves to other people, but before God's righteous and holy law, uh, that, of course, is not a place of joy. But, oh, how attracted our fallen human nature is to these calf pens of manure. How often we run there to seek to be right before God or seek to find joy, which will never lead to joy. Therefore, Paul wants us to deliberately, to actively be looking away from ourselves. Well, so far, I haven't really told you how we actually attain to this joy of our justification. We have to look out for the enemy, and then negatively, we have to look away from ourselves. Well, how do we actually find and attain this joy of our justification? Well, lastly, we need to look to Christ by faith. We need to look to Christ by faith. Paul tells us that being justified in Christ is our joy, and we receive that through faith. In verses 7 through 9, Paul describes his relationship with Christ in a number of ways. For example, in verse 8, he speaks of knowing Christ and gaining Christ. Verse 9, he speaks of, of being found in Christ and having his righteousness. It's here in this latter phrase of verse 9 that Paul describes our justification. For example, if you look with me in verse 9, Paul says, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's telling us that what it means to be justified is that now God is not viewing you according to your inherent righteousness, but according to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says when we look to Christ, we receive this free gift of righteousness. And Paul says that the looking to Christ is an act of faith. The looking to Christ is an act of faith. He says this explicitly in verse 9, through faith in Christ. This faith is the key that unlocks for us the door of the joy of our justification. It's the key. Well, what is faith? Of course, faith, uh, according to this passage, is very important if it's unlocking that door. What is faith? There's a lot of ways we could describe faith, but I think fundamentally, what faith is, it's believing that Christ lived and died for you. For you. That's key. He didn't just live and die for some people out there, but he did it for you. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was thinking not just of a generic sum of people out there, but he was thinking of you specifically. He was thinking of your own sins and struggles and temptations as he was paying for your sins. Do you believe that what motivated him to get up each and every day and perfectly obey God's law was to provide you specifically with a righteousness that you could never provide. Think of a particular sin and struggle that has plagued you even this last week. Do you believe that when Jesus was tempted with that very same sin and struggle, he was thinking of you as he perfectly 
obeyed God's law in that matter so that you wouldn't be condemned for your sin? Do you believe that Christ lived and died for you? Boys and girls, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? The Bible is very clear that uh, Christ didn't just die for adults. He died for children too. He's a God to us and to our children. Do you believe this for yourself? What Paul is saying here for us is that when you do believe, the salvation, this justification is yours. And it's yours on the sunny days. It's yours on the stormy days. It's yours when you seem to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's yours when you seem to be walking on the mountaintops. Therefore, because this is the case, we have reason to rejoice no matter what we are going through because our justification is final. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. Now, the disconnect for most of us probably is not so much knowing that we're justified, but always experiencing and feeling the joy that's meant to be tied to that justification. We may know we're justified, but where's that joy that Paul is describing for us? I think it's important to to distinguish between joy as an emotion and joy as an act. Obviously, our emotions wax and wane. They go in and out, and oftentimes we have very little control over what we're feeling at a present moment. But we can choose to pursue joy in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And this is, I think, true of really all virtues. For example, take fear and courage. We oftentimes can't control when the feeling and emotion of fear overwhelms us. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to control our proceeding actions, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And the more we decide and choose to live courageously, the more we become a courageous person. So yes, our our emotion and feeling of joy is going to wax and wane. But we can choose to pursue an attitude of rejoicing. We can choose to pursue joy in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Well, how do we then pursue this joy? How do we seek this joy of our justification? Will we repeatedly fix our minds on the source, the ground of our joy, which is our justification? We think about it, we speak about it, we live as if it's true. But how often we forget. We forget our most important part, the most important part of our identity, the most important part of who we are. We so often forget this. You know, a few weeks ago I read an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal about a South Dakota man who was living in a county that had about a 50% uh, poverty rate, and I think he was in his late 20s. His house had recently been repossessed. He was living in his camper. I believe he was a farmhand, a farmhand. And one day he bought a lottery ticket, and it was the winning ticket. And he found out he was about to receive $232 million. And he went on to, I think this was 11 years ago, he went on to buy like 2,000 acres, built like four ranch homes. And the point of the article was he was now selling putting this ranch on the market for like $42 million. It's like a South Dakota record. But the point of this illustration is imagine that man's elation, the moment when he found out that he had the winning ticket. 
he was about to receive $230 million. This was going to drastically change the outcome of his life, his family's life, his extended family's life. He would have been elated. Put yourself in his shoes. Brothers and sisters, that's just a sum of money. We as the justified have infinitely greater blessings than that. We have an everlasting inheritance, a new creation that Paul says no human being can even begin to comprehend. That we've been taken out of God's wrath and condemnation. We're adopted into his family. We've been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We are the justified. But how often we forget who we are. I believe this is what the psalmist was getting at when he says, you have put more joy in my heart than when grain and wine abound. So let me ask you, how have you been doing in pursuing the joy of your justification? Do you fix your minds upon it? Do you speak about it throughout your day? Do you live as if it's actually true? Do you live as if you're that South Dakota man about to receive that check? Well, even the most disciplined among us still need to be reminded of this glorious reality. We need to be reminded to fix our minds upon it. This is part of the reason why we have the body of Christ, the local church. This is one of the reasons what makes the church unique. Every other institution, every other affiliation you might belong to only has a fleeting joy, a joy that's dependent upon the front page of the newspaper. But it's at the church, when we gather together as the saints, we are reminded of a joy that transcends our life in this world, that's with us no matter what we are going through. So when we gather together, are we merely rejoicing in what the world's rejoicing in? Are we merely being depressed about what the world's depressed about? Or do we seek to remind our fellow pilgrims of the joy of our justification that transcends our present circumstances as we look forward to the hope of our heavenly homeland? Well, in a few moments, we will uh, turn to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is one of these reminders for us. It's a reminder of the joy of our justification. In fact, it's the joy of our justification made visible, tangible to our senses. It looks forward to that hope that we have of the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will inherit the new creation, that, that, that inheritance that Paul says no human being can comprehend in this life. I will conclude as the Apostle Paul began uh, this passage, saying, finally, my brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the Lord the Lord's justification of us in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for Christ, who has indeed given us the greatest gift of all, the gift of being made right with you. May you cause us to fix our minds more and more upon this glorious truth. As we do so, may you restore to us the joy of our salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.